0: Our passage of scripture today, it's an honor and privilege to read God's word. is from James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Let's read together. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have And weep, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves, therefore, before the Lord, and he will exalt you. May God bless the reading of his
1: word. Amen. That that brings so much joy to my heart. All right, James chapter 4. Hopefully you're there. If this is your first time here, you picked, you picked one. You, you picked a day. You really did. Um, I'm so glad that you're here. I know Leah's getting baptized right after the service. We talked about that. I know we've got some people who were delayed at uh, the Charlotte Airport on their way to Colorado. Y'all are visiting us. We're welcoming y'all. Um, you're just jumping right into it, right into the fire today. But let's go. Let's I preached for so long last week, and I—it um, was so funny. I, I finished my first point, and then, and I was like, "Well, that's the first point." All of y'all started laughing, and I had no idea why you were laughing, and I was so confused. And then y'all came up to me afterwards and said, "We were laughing because you were preaching too long." And so, now I know. Um, it's going to be a long one today, too. Here we go. Um, listen, when I was a kid, there was this poem. And, uh, and my brother, I have a twin brother, my twin brother and I loved quoting this poem. It was full of contradictions and absurdities, and we absolutely loved it. We used to quote it to each other all the time. It was about two dead boys. Do you know, does anybody know this old poem about two dead boys? I've got it for you. Let's go. Yes. One morning in the night, two dead boys got up to fight. Back to back, they faced each other, drew their swords, and shot each other. One deaf policeman heard the noise, came down and shot those two dead boys. And if you don't believe this lie is true, ask the blind man. He saw it too. My twin and I love that. It actually goes all the way back to the 1300s and the British Isles. It was like British folklore, and, and it's evolved and been adapted, and it's developed over the last you know 700 years or so. But the thing about this poem is that every line in it is an impossibility and as the poem progresses the impossibilities get bigger and more absurd and greater to the point we're just like this is phenomenal and every eight-year-old boy loves this thing. I think in a lot of ways this is really what James has been doing with his letter and if you've been here you know exactly what I'm talking about except he's not coming up with absurdities. James is essentially trying to point out all of the contradictions in this church that he's writing to, over and over and over again. And as the letter progresses, the contradictions get more absurd. They get bigger, they get greater, more wild, to the point where we are here now, and it's, it's like unbelievable. It's as if James has had enough. And he's, it's, you can hear in his tone, he's, he's just kind of sick of this, this church that he's writing to. Um, Usually, when we think of the early church, we think of the early church as like being red hot for Jesus, and they were generous, and they were compassionate, and they loved the poor, and they sold their possessions, and they lived in this commune, and it was amazing. We think of the early church as this ideal kind of fantasy. James did not think that about the early church. If you've been here, you know you're picking that up. When James thought about this church, he did not see them as rock-solid Christians. He saw them as walking contradictions. They heard the word, but they didn't practice the word. They held the faith, but they didn't apply it. They were religious, but they didn't care for the poor. They were family, but they showed favoritism. They blessed God. They cursed people. They claimed to be wise. They lived like fools. They loved God, as we're going to see today, but they loved the world. On and on it goes. So I tried to make up a poem that matched the two dead boys poem. And it's called One Dead Church. And it, and it goes like this. One church had the light, but they spurned the poor and loved to fight. With their tongues they stabbed each other, worshipped God, and cursed their brother. Or you could put mother in there too, because they both, I, I debated. That's as far as I got though. I'm not a great poet. If, if some of you are poets and you finish those last four lines, I just gave up. Let me know what you come up with. Yeah, okay. Like this old poem, these uh, early Christians were confounded. They were confused. They had become contradictions in almost every way possible. And at this point in the letter, like I said, James drops the gloves. Have you ever been writing a, a letter? Anybody still write letters? maybe a text or an email. My wife writes, writes letters. I, I really appreciate that about her. Have you ever been writing a letter to someone that you're frustrated with and it starts out kind and it starts out like with a tone of grace and empathy. And then as the letter progresses, you're like, forget that kind of stuff, like forget the grace and you change your tone and you change your words. And then like this happens to me sometimes and I show my wife the text I'm about to send and she's like, do not send that text. I'm like thank you, I will not. Um, the tone changes a little bit. That's what's going on in James chapter four. In these first ten verses that, that Doug just read, James goes from calling these Christians beloved brothers to now he is calling them adulterous, double-minded sinners, and enemies of God Himself. Some, he, he's just done. <laughs> he's done with the kindness. Verse 11, he goes back to calling them brothers, but there's a lapse between verses 1 and verses 11 where he's just like, forget it. Let me tell you what I really think. You see, Christians in this church were the bride of Christ, but it was as if they were still wanting to to play the field. They belonged to Jesus, but, you know, they wanted to keep their options open. Uh, They were his friends, but every once in a while they thought it was okay to, to live like his enemies, they loved God, but they were still obsessed with the world. And so what they needed more than anything was to see the contradiction that was their lives. They needed to be exposed to the problem. The mirror needed to be held up. I just saw a video. I was sent a video this past week of a bear running around in the woods. And, and somebody had just like uh, erected a, a mirror, a giant mirror in the woods. And this bear is just kind of walking along and the bear sees the mirror and with bear-like reflexes, like jumps back and then attacks the mirror and smashes the mirror to the ground. And I sent it to my elders because I was like, this is our response every time we open the mirror of God's word. (laughs) Like The Bible tells us who we really are and we see it and we're like bear-like reflexes. We're tearing this mirror down. We're stepping all over it. We want nothing to do with it. Yeah, that's just, This is what we need. We need to see the contradiction of our lives. And then we need to be reminded of the cure. We need to be reminded of the fact that we can actually change. Unlike Seneca, Seneca thought that we knew our sin and we were aware of our sin, but we were hopeless in, in, in ever being able to change it. The gospel says, listen, here's your sin. I'm holding up the mirror, but I want to show you the cure. I want to show you how you don't have to stay there. That's what these 10 verses are all about. It's hard medicine to swallow. James doesn't sugarcoat it, but it is absolutely vital for us. So, with that being said, I want to show you a couple of things. First, what is the problem that had taken root in this first church? Maybe what is the problem that is taking root in your hearts? And then what's the cure for it? The problem is a love for the world, it's pretty explicit. And James shows us three reasons why that problem is a really big deal. So if you want to know where we're going, first, it's a big deal because it creates division. Second, it's a big deal because it actually stifles your prayer life. And then third, it's a really big deal because it provokes God to anger. So there's a progression there, okay? (laughs) So let's unpack all of these things, and then we'll get to the cure afterwards. First, worldliness needs to be cut out. Of our hearts, that is, because it creates division. Look back at verse 1. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire or you lust, but you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now, when I was in school in Pennsylvania, I, I won tickets to this minor league hockey game. And I'd never been to a minor league hockey game. I'm not a huge hockey guy, but I was like, they're free, I'll go. And the moment the ref dropped the puck, the instant the the puck hit the ice, everybody on both sides dropped their gloves and they just picked the guy, the guy that was closest to them, and they brawled. And it was like Rome. We were in the Colosseum. Everybody was like, yeah, you know, screaming and like thumbs up and thumbs down and stuff like that. And I was like, what is this? Is this this, hockey? It was wild. By the end of the game, eight people had been ejected. It was just fight after fight. after. And I don't know what happened beforehand. Clearly, there was some animosity there under the surface. It was the best hockey game I have ever been to. I'll tell you that right now. (laughs) Uh, now when I go to hockey games, I'm like, where's all the fights? Like, I mean, I'm here for the fights. It ruined me. Listen, when you, when you go to a hockey game, you expect fights. At least I do now. But when you go to church, you expect something a little gen- more gentle. You expect something a little softer, a little kinder, a little more gracious. You don't go to church. You didn't come here today looking for a brawl. You came looking for a blessing. How can you get blessed? Now we're talking about sin and all that you did not come here looking for a scrap. You came here looking for support. And yet the longer you're here, the, the, the more years that pass, and you actually get to know people in community, it takes about three years for the honeymoon to wear off in a church. Three years. We're four years old. we have seen some drama this past year. I'm not going to lie. The more you're with people, the more you have an opportunity to offend, the more you have an opportunity to grade up against The more you have an opportunity to sin against and just miscommunicate stuff. I was at lunch this past week with a bunch of pastors and leaders from all over the city, and we were with this guy named Ed Stetzer. And Ed Stetzer is a missiologist. He's got two PhDs, and he's he's written written all these books, and used to write for Christianity Today. And we're sitting uh, at a free lunch with uh, with Ed Stetzer and, and getting a talk from him and he pointed out, one of the things he was really pointing out in his talk was that the church today is going through a massive convulsion. Uh, So much disunity. And it, it really started in 2020. I mean, there's always been like little schisms and little fights and little quarrels and all that kind of stuff. But in 2020, like this massive convulsion just started. And it started with the first impeachment in January attempt. And it started with then COVID and then George Floyd and then the election and then the insurrection. And so you have from January to January, like all of this stuff happened in our country. So there was a convulsion in our country and the convulsion has made its way into our churches. And you feel that, right? And rather than being marked by unity and rather than being marked by compassion and rather than being marked by love, we, and I'm not saying you here in this room, we collectively, Big C Church, we are now dominated by fights and quarrels and schisms. James asks, why is that? What's the source? Who started it? And you can blame all kinds of stuff. It's the maskers or it's the anti-maskers. It's the vaxxers or the anti-vaxxers. It's the BLMers or the all AOMers. Oh, man, um... You could blame all kinds of external things for who started it and who's the cause and who's the culprit. James says, it's nobody out there. The cause for every single one of our quarrels is inside of you. It's, It's this worldliness, these passions, these lusts, these desires that are inside of you. You started it. I started it every single time. Now, what does that mean? That's, that seems like a little bit harsh, James. Um, the word for passions here in the Greek is the word hedoni. And, and it, it's where we get our word hedonism from or hedonist. And it's literally talking about the ultimate or the dominating desire for our own personal pleasure. That's what this word is talking about. That's what passions means. If you like to write stuff in your Bible, write that out. So when you're looking back at it three years from now, you'll remember it. It's actually the same word that Jesus used in in Luke 8 when he said that the gospel would be choked out of some of his disciples by the passions and the desires of the world. Pleasure, guys, in and of itself is not a bad thing. I'm a seven on the Enneagram. I call myself a Christian hedonist, okay? I I love pleasure so much. But a dominating desire for pleasure is deadly. Absolutely deadly. Now, listen, and I want to be clear here, because some of you, this is your first time in church, and you're going to hear me wrong, so I want you to hear me right. I love pleasure, so does God. God is actually the author of every single pleasure on planet Earth, He's the one who created it under the sun. He gave us pleasure to whet our appetites for a greater pleasure. He gave us all of these good things on earth so that we could experience and be like, that was beautiful, that was amazing, that was glorious, so that we would be driven to look outside of the earth for something out of this world, so to speak, namely him. And so there's signposts to the creator Pleasure is a good thing as long as it's enjoyed in its right place, as long as it's used as a vehicle to take us to the author and giver of pleasure. So believe me, if you spend a week with me, you'll know. Life is good, okay? And God intended it to be that way. James isn't talking about that. Hedonism is not enjoying pleasure as a gift from God. Hedonism is chasing pleasure as if it was God. That's America, by the way that's our culture, that's the world system, that's our ethos, hedonism is chasing pleasure as if it was God, I love how C.S. Lewis put it in his book, The Screwtape Letters, if you haven't read The Screwtape Letters, you got to read this book, it's so cool, it's from the, the the brilliant imagination of C.S. Lewis, and he imagines that there's this master demon, it's, fi- it's fiction, There's a master demon, and he's trying to train up an apprentice demon for how to lead people astray, lead people away from God, and ruin their lives. And so the book is correspondence between the apprentice and the master, and it's just really brilliant insight in a a kind of cool medium. Look at how the master talks about pleasure to his little apprentice. He says this, Never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form— We are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground. God is the enemy. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure, but all the same, it's his invention, not ours. He made the pleasures, and all of our research so far has not enabled us to produce a single one. All we can do is encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced and at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden Hence, we always try to work away from the natural condition of any pleasure to that which is the least natural. Listen to this. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure— Guys, that's what James is talking about. And I'll, I'll just let you know a secret. If you haven't figured it out yet, you will one day. Everything on planet Earth, everything that is not God, that is pleasurable, ultimately becomes less pleasurable the next time you partake of it. And then it becomes less pleasurable the next time you partake of it. And on and on and on it goes. It's, it's the law of diminishing returns. It takes more to get us excited the older we get because we've experienced everything an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. Then he says, that passion is at war within us. Maybe your translation says that that passion is waging war. It literally means that our passions are encamped around us. They've, they've, they've set up their tents They're preparing their catapults and their their fiery little like rock things that they're going to heave over our walls. And all of these passions are inside of us and they've camped out around our heart looking for a way to get in. I'm really into the Lord of the Rings and I just introduced my my nine-year-old son to it. So I have a picture because my mind was already there. It's kind of hard to see, but that's Helm's Deep. Anybody know... The Two Towers and the Battle of Helm's Deep. Come on, Lord of the Rings fans. Let me hear you. Okay, don't be shy. Don't be shy. Um, I imagine that in my heart. Okay, uh, That's what I see in my head. Um, I imagine all of like my evil desires are like the orcs and and they are violent and they're evil and they're coming after me and I've got walls around my heart because I got a new heart and and I I can do things to strengthen these walls but there's lots of different entrances like there's a there's a, a walkway kind of on the north side you can't see it in this picture and 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 the orcs can climb up that way or they can get their big ladders and they can try to swing those ladders up to the top and then they're all going to climb up, or they have these big machines, and they, they move those machines up to the, to the gate, to the fence, and then they, they lower the, the door down, and everyone just jumps in. In Lord of the Rings, though, there's this tunnel. This, it's under the wall, and it's where the water flows in and out, and they have this insane kamikaze berserker orc. And he gets a torch, and they've put all of this gunpowder underneath the wall, and he runs underneath the wall and kills himself and blows up the wall, and then all the orcs get in, and they take over Hums Deep. Listen, guys, I don't care how you imagine it. I don't care how you see your heart. But essentially, that's what James is saying is going on inside of us. There is evil that still lives inside of you because of your flesh. You're given a new heart. At regeneration, you are transformed. The heart of stone is replaced with a heart of flesh. You are made clean. You're a new creation, but you still wrestle with this old, old flesh and all of the old desires and cravings and lusts that want to ruin you. And so day after day, they are trying to raise the ladder to get up the wall. They're sending the berserker underneath, underneath the aqueduct. They're trying to go in every possible way they can. And, and for you, your gates or your ears... Your gates are your eyes. Your gates, your mouth. What you see, oh, it's coming in. What you hear, it's coming in. What you taste, it's coming in. They're at war for your heart and everything that you do with your body is doing something to your heart. It's shaping you and you need to know that. That's what James is talking about. You've got an army of passions and lusts and desires encamped within you and they are trying to ruin your life. Now, this is the point. If you are fighting with people in your life, it is because you are losing that battle in your heart. The wall has been overtaken. The, the right king who was on the throne has been picked up, thrown to the side, and now there's a new king on that throne and it's your lust, it's your desire, it's your passion. If you are fighting with people out there, it's because you've lost the fight in here. Know what the cause is. Know who started it. Who's at fault. Guys, civil war in the church is always the result of civil wars in our heart. The reason that we go to war with others is because we're losing the war within. And so what you and I need to hear today is this warning and this exhortation to cut it out, to go to war. And if you like a different imagery, I don't know, come up with your own. Preach your own sermon. Go to war. The ethos of our world is self-indulgence. The ethos of our culture is self actualization and self gratification. Worldliness in our context is a passionate and exclusive love affair with ourselves. It feels good. If it feels good, do it. Amen? If it makes you happy, don't let anyone stop you. If it brings you pleasure, how could it be wrong? You do you because you only live once and if you don't get as much pleasure as humanly possible, you're going to waste your one shot and then you're going to be dead and the worms get you and it's all over. And so we justify gluttony. We celebrate greed. We defend our adultery. We glorify debauchery. And we go to war with anyone and everyone who gets in our way. You desire and you do not have, so you, you murder, whether that's literal or not. You might not kill their bodies, but you can kill their spirit. You might not kill their bodies, but you can kill their reputation. Anyone kill a reputation this past week with some gossip and some slander? You might not be able to kill someone's body, or you can, but you might not. You're, none of you are murderers in here. I hope, maybe, maybe you are, welcome. Uh, there's redemption um, in, in the blood. Um, Uh, But anyone ever kill someone's joy, kill someone's confidence, you covet and cannot attain, so you fight and quarrel. Guys, if we want unity in our churches and peace in our homes and in our communities, then worldliness has to be cut out of our hearts because it creates division. That's the first thing we need to see. I'm already doing better than last week, aren't I? Okay worldliness number two needs to be cut out because it stifles prayer look at verse three you do not have because you do not ask you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly so that you can spend it on those old passions this is so obvious isn't it at least it is for me when I was reading I'm like yeah that's true that's my life a lot of times if your heart is set on the world and your ultimate desire is your own pleasure What's the last thing in the world you're going to do? Talk to God. <laughs> right? Because the moment you start talking to God, he exposes it. He just starts talking to you. And you're like, ooh, this is very uncomfortable. I, I, I think I'm going to stay on this path over here. You've got your vision wall up, and, and you've got the three M's of vision wall, of every vision wall. Right? You know what they are? Money, mansions, and Maseratis. That's every guy's vision wall right now. Money, mansions, and Maseratis. You've got this. You're doing you. You're chasing all the things that the world has to offer. Then it comes time to pray, and somehow you know that your vision wall isn't appropriate. Somehow you know that when you got poor people all around you, there's something off with your desire. I was just reading an interview with an old uh, basketball player, retired basketball player, and he was he was mourning the fact now that he's older, he's like, I could have fed my community ten times over. But I bought cars and mansions. And he's like, what a fool I was. There's something in us that knows it's wrong. But our, our society tells us it's great because you do you. If it if it makes you feel good, how could it be wrong, right? And you just don't pray. Some of you, some of you don't have what you need, because you don't ask God for it. And the reason you don't ask God for it is because there's somebody on the throne other than him. You want something more than him. So instead of asking for something, you just ask for nothing. But then look, James doesn't stop there. Some of us are are at least self-aware enough to know that if we've got a vision wall of the three M's, we probably shouldn't be talking to God about stuff because he told us to pray for his kingdom to come and his will would to be done. Some of us are that self-aware, some of us are not that self-aware. So look at what James says. He says, "Some of you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly so that you can spend it on your own passions." So some of you have the vision wall and you're asking God for the vision wall. That's what he's saying there. John Ward is a great example of this. John Ward is dead, so I can talk about him. It's not gossip. So John Ward was uh, this, this uh, politician in Great Britain a long time ago. He's dead. Okay. Um, after he died, people found uh, all of his papers on his desk, and they found uh, a prayer that he had written. And listen to this prayer. It went like this, and it's in like Old English, so pardon me. He said, Oh, Lord, thou knowest that I have mine estates in the city of London, and likewise I have lately purchased an estate in the county of Essex, I beseech thee to preserve the two counties of Middlesex and Essex from fire and earthquake. And as I have a mortgage in Hertfordshire, I beg thee likewise to have an eye of compassion on that county. As for the rest of the counties, thou mayest deal with them as thou art pleased. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's, that's delusional, right? It's the opposite of your kingdom come, your will be done. In my life, in my city, in my county, as it is in heaven, and and I and I know that you probably aren't writing out prayers like that, but I'm just going to be real with you right now. Some of you pray like that. Some of you are that delusional, and you might not be that bold. Like you try to trick them, you know. You're subtle with it, really subtle. Oh, God, I love you. I love you so much. I, I really want your kingdom to come. God, I really, really, really want this wife. Like, you know, by the way, I mean, it's like I used to do this in college. That's why I know. I know from experience. I would try to trick God. I'm so content right now, God. I'm so content. I'm so satisfied in you. All I want is your kingdom to come. I'll, I'll be a missionary to Africa. I'll do whatever you want me to do. And I'm like, in, inside, I'm like, maybe he will give me a wife. You know? <laughs> You you guys are like, I've never done that before. Your motives, my motives, we're still the same. We're frustrated and confused, and even angry that God doesn't answer our prayers. I've totally been there. Maybe, maybe if you're not getting what you want, you need to stop and ask yourself two questions: Am I actually praying? And second, am I am I praying with the wrong reasons, with the wrong motives? You can't trick God. Heads up, (laughs) he knows everything. And there's really good news that comes after this. Oh, it's such good news, because even when we're praying, we don't know what to pray. The Spirit prays for us. us. It's incredible. But some of you are praying with the wrong motives. I I love how one author put it, Kent Hughes, and I reference him a lot, but he's he's a beast. He said, a pleasure-driven prayer life finds heaven made of brass. The petty circumference of its requests simply do not interest the Father. Guys, some of you are praying for good things. You really are. It's good to pray for a wife. It's good to long for a spouse. It's good to pray for a new job. It's good to pray for a house. But no matter how subtle it might seem, if you are only interested in your personal pleasure, God does not care. That sounds hard, but I'm not saying that. James is literally saying this. 1 John 3.21 says this. Beloved, If our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him, what pleases God. To love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what pleases God. Philippians 2 says that it is God's will for your life to have the same mind that was in Christ and to care more about other people than you do yourself. That's God's will for your life. That's what it would look like for his will to be done and his kingdom to come in your life. That you would love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You would have no other God in here, and you would care more about others than you do yourself. So, what pleases God is a heart that doesn't say, I am first, or not even, I am second. I know it's a really popular thing, and it's cool. Um, and I, it's fine, okay? It's not even saying, I am third. <laughs> the heart of, that pleases God is the heart that says, I'm last. Jesus said, it's the last who are going to be first in the kingdom of God. You're not first, you're not second, you're not third. Jesus said, I came to serve, not to be served. So if you want to be one of my followers, you've got to follow in my footsteps. How can you serve if you're anything but last? Because everyone loves the idea of service until you're treated like a servant. And if you think you're anything but last, you're not going to want to be treated like a servant. Trust me, I know, I wrestle with it every day. I I don't like being last. So, when we pray... A heart that is pleasing to to the Lord says, man, I I care more about you than I care about me. I care more about others than I I care about me. So if you give me what I'm asking for, God, oh man, it's going to be for your kingdom. It's going to be for your glory. It's going to be for your honor. And it is going to be for the blessing and well-being of those around me. If you answer this prayer. That's a heart that pleases God. Let me just say this isn't easy. Caroline and I, we recently wrestled with this a few years ago when we were buying a house. We lived in a two-bedroom, tiny two-bedroom apartment in Uptown. And Nicholas and Livy were alive. And um, our door didn't actually have a real door. It had a sliding barn door with like a foggy glass. And there was no, uh, it was open. There was like a, a, a gap of like 12 inches at the top like no privacy at all. So we are like, you know, in our room. And then we'd always see our kids like walk up to the glass and we could see, we could see their silhouettes and they're trying to look in the foggy glass. And, um, we had to be strategic, but Caroline got pregnant again. And, and, uh, and so Claire's on the way and we're like, we got it. We have to move. Like we, we cannot stay in this apartment. Uh, our backyard was Stonewall station. And, uh, it was awesome. We had a blast. I loved living in uptown. But we were like, we got to get a house. And so we're praying for a house. And we're, we had all these lists. We got the checklist. You know, if you've bought a house, you have a checklist of the things that you want. Some of you are real estate agents and stuff. And so we're praying. We're like, you know, we need at least three bedrooms. You know, we'd love to have two bathrooms. So we don't have to share a bathroom with our kids. You know, that'd be amazing. Like, and we want at least 2,000 square feet. And we would love to have a yard. Because we haven't had a yard in years. And our kids, so it would be great to just send them outside and forget about them. You know, it just... just Go play, you know? And so we have this list of stuff. We love our kids so much. Sometimes they just need to use that imagination. Okay, so so we're praying, and we'd be praying at night, and we really wanted to live close to the church. And we're like, that's not happening. I mean, with this market, it's crazy. So we're praying, and every time you pray, the moment, I talked about this last week, the moment you start praying, the Spirit of God starts talking to you. It happens every single time. And so the moment you start asking for stuff, the Spirit of God starts asking you questions. He starts saying things like, well, why? Why do you want that? And then it's a wrestling match because then you realize, wait, I still have a lot of my kingdom desires in here and I'm supposed to have his kingdom desires, and then you start. he starts exposing things, and then you start wrestling a little bit, and then you wrestle until you're able to say, okay, your kingdom come, and your will be done, and, and so we're praying these things, and we're evaluating. We're like, okay, well, why do we need, why do we need this? Why do we need that? Why do we need this? And and, and, and we're, we're struggling through these things because we want to have hearts that please God because we actually want our prayer to be answered. And we believe that he'll answer the prayer if our hearts are honest and pure and open before him. And So we were just praying, God, expose us in this in us. This, this is how we do it. It's so easy. It's not rocket science. Like, God, we would love a house with three bedrooms, if that's your will. If We'd love a house with four. We'd love a house with ten bedrooms. I mean, who wouldn't? Um... And, and, and we're like, God, if it's your will for us to have a house with three bedrooms, man, we'll, we'll be good with that. It, help us find that. We would love a house with a flat yard. that just Kids could play out. And if that's your will, man, 2,000 square feet, we would love that. We would love to host people in our home. And the Holy Spirit's asking questions like, do you want more space so you can have more stuff? Or do you want more space so that you can host more people? You know? Like, do you want a walk-in closet for your shoes? Or do you want to walk in closet so you can climb in there and and pray? You know, he's asking you all these questions and you're wrestling with him. And and then he wins. And then your heart's pure. Because you prayed. (laughs) It's amazing how it works. Some of you don't have because you don't ask. And some of you don't have because your heart is consumed with the pleasures of the world. So if you want your prayers to be answered, you need to cut the worldliness out of your heart. You with me? All right. Finally, worldliness needs to be cut out because it provokes God. Verse 4, you adulterous people. I'm not sure how James intended that to be read. I'm just going to play it safe and I'm going to whisper it. But there's an exclamation point there. So as I whisper it... Um, just know I'm whispering it because I struggle with this too and I don't want you to feel like I'm yelling at you. But I think James is yelling here, okay? James is yelling here. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Do you not know this? Isn't this common sense? Why do I have to tell you this? That's what James is saying here. Therefore, therefore, Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This is the most staggering language in the whole letter. He's saying it's possible to be so brainwashed by our world and by our own passions that we can actually live in opposition to God, even as believers, because he's writing to believers. He's writing to the bride of Christ, and he's saying, you're an adulterer. He's writing to those who've been made friends of God by the blood of the cross, and he's calling them enemies. If you love the world, and you chase the world, and you make yourself a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Now, this just for clarification, this does not mean people. This does not mean if you, if you, if you love people in, in the world. It, it means the world system that puts you and your passions at the center of the universe. It's talking about a deliberate choice to defy God. It's talking about a deliberate decision to rebel against him and sort of kiss up to the world system. Um, Jesus told his disciples that the world hated him. And so if they were really his followers, they shouldn't be surprised if the world hated them too. Uh, They opposed the world. So if the world doesn't hate you, don't be surprised if Jesus says, you don't belong to me. If the way you live your life doesn't fly in the face of our selfish, arrogant, debauch ethos, don't be surprised if Jesus says, you're not my friend. James says this kind of relationship with the world that is enmity with God, he says it provokes God to jealousy. Do you see that in verse 5? He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. You could translate that the spirit he caused to live in us longs jealously. That's actually really good news because it shows how much God loves you. Because jealousy flows out of love, at least the good kind of jealousy. There's a bad kind of jealousy, too. But good kind of jealousy flows out of love. It flows out of covenant love. It's the emotion that I would feel if I rolled home after a long day of work, and I was so excited to see my wife and so excited to see my kids and then play with them and eat supper with them. And then I rolled in, and there was another man sitting at the table. This is the emotion that I would feel. Hey, I've got a covenant relationship with this woman. What are you doing here? Why are you in my seat? That's my chair. This is my house. That's my wife. I belong to her. She belongs to me. We actually became one person. We made a covenant before God and in front of witnesses. A covenant's strong. It means something. It matters. If Caroline looked at me and she was just like, listen, Benjamin, that's my real name. Um, Only my family calls me that. That's another story, someday I'll tell you that. Um, You can call it to me if you want. You're my family. Um, So what if she said, Benjamin, uh, Benjamin, I love you. Um, I'm still still really into you. Um, But I got like three or four other guys that I'm just gonna start on a rotation. So you, you get Monday nights. Um, so I'll cook for you. You can play with the kids. You can sleep in the bed. Monday nights. Tuesday night, Bob's coming over. Um, I came up with like the worst possible names. Like I love Bob. Bob's a great name. Um, <laughs> oh man, I'm gonna get emails for that every single time I go off my manuscript. I say something I regret. Okay. Um, Wednesday night. Yeah, I love you, Bob. You know you got a basic name. I do too. Um, Wednesday night, Jack's coming over. <sighs> Just I gave myself away here. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, I love you. And, and you can have Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday are off, but we'll play it by ear Thursday, you know, Friday, Saturday, whatever. So um, that would provoke me to jealousy, and that jealousy would be a good thing. If I wasn't jealous, that would be a bad thing. If I wasn't jealous, you would say, Well, you don't really love her that much, right? And so the fact that God is jealous, that He's longing, the Spirit of God is inside of us, longing jealously shows His love. He says, I've got a covenant with you. I made you my bride. I bought you with a price. It wasn't cheap, it was expensive, it cost me my son. I bought you, you're mine. I've redeemed you. Not only did I make you, but I I did everything I could to heal what was wrong with you so that you could be in my family for all eternity. Man, if, if I wouldn't be okay with my wife acting like that, how much more do you think God cares? How much more jealous do you think that he is? I would not be over here just like twiddling my thumbs. Like, you do you, you know? If it feels good, do it. If it makes you happy, who, who am I to stop you? Just twiddling my thumbs. Guys, God is not just like up in heaven as you and I play the adulterer, twiddling his thumbs. Well, <laughs> I know it's not Monday. Well, it's Sunday. I know it's not Sunday, so you do you. If it feels good, do it. If it makes you happy, who am I to stop you? As long as you're there on Sunday, I'll take what I can get. Just that little piece of the pie. Just twiddling his thumbs up there somewhere. Now this text says he's not up there somewhere. He's put his spirit inside of you. So every time you play the adulterer, his spirit's right there with you. And his spirit is longing jealously. He's provoked to anger. He's provoked to pain. He's provoked to heartache and heartbreak break. Every time you let those evil orcs climb the fence and take him off the throne and replace it with your own lust and your own design and your own pleasure. Oh, he's there and he's he's saying, this is not how it should be. Because I love you. Don't you know that I love you? Don't you love me? We provoke him to jealousy. Galatians 5 tells us that the Holy Spirit is the sworn enemy of the desires of our sinful nature. And so they're at war inside of us. They're camped out, but the Spirit's inside of us too. And he's trying to do the battle for us. Like, he's in there, and he's trying to chop away at the flesh. Romans 8, if you walk by the Spirit, you're not going to gratify the flesh. If you walk by the Spirit, he's going he's to set your mind on things that are life and things that are godly, and things that will lead to your flourishing. And and he's going to give you victory. He's going to crush those orcs. But if you don't, you're going to quench the spirit. You're going to grieve the spirit. You're going to provoke the spirit. We who are the bride of Christ make ourselves adulterers. We who are the friends of Christ make ourselves his enemies. And so this is a massive problem, wouldn't you say? It's is a massive problem. How many of us did this exact thing this past week? You can raise your hand. I'm, I'm alone right now. I'm, I'm alone. I'm all alone. You're leaving me hanging. Okay. We got like a hundred honest people in here. Like a hundred people. I'm just joking. How many of you chased after your own passions this past week? How many of you let the lusts of the flesh take the seat on the throne this past week? How many of you willingly chose to defy your maker and rebel against his good and gracious laws? How many of you loved the world and made yourself his enemy? So we have a massive problem. That's the bad news. I promised there would be good news and that's true and that's the rest of this passage. What's the remedy? The remedy, look back at verse six. But he gives more grace. Amen? Amen. He gives more grace. He gives more grace. James is a brutal Letter The mirror is so uncomfortable. But if you take one line away from James, it should be this one. He gives more grace. That's the remedy that you and I need every single minute of every single day. More grace. Now listen, he isn't talking about saving grace because every believer has that and we get it once and for all at the moment of salvation. He's talking about sanctifying grace, and sanctifying is the big Christian word for the process that the Spirit takes us on so that we become more and more like Jesus, so that we love the things that he loves and we do the things that he does. That's the grace that we need in order to look more like him and to fight our flesh and all of these things that James is talking about. So the Apostle Paul describes that kind of grace as greater grace. It's just more grace. Greater grace. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then approach the throne of grace. What kind of throne do you imagine that God sits on? A throne of wrath? A throne of justice? A throne of, I can't stand you because of all of your sin and how much you messed up this past week? Evidently, according to Hebrews, the way we should think about the throne of God is that it is a throne of grace. grace flows out of the throne, which means he doesn't get tired of us, and he doesn't hold his nose, he doesn't get so sick and impatient of us constantly making the same mistakes day in and day out, week in and week out. He cannot wait to lavish us with more and greater grace. So Hebrews 4.16 says, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence, not because we lived perfectly, but because we didn't live perfectly and we need grace and we're going to the throne of grace. And so we're confident. Man, I need grace because I keep sinning. I'm going to go to this throne and I'm fully confident that he's just going to lavish me with more and greater grace. That's what this passage is saying. So that we may receive mercy and we may find grace to help us in our time of need. Hebrews 4.16, memorize that verse. Get it tattooed. Like see if you if you got a bad memory, like put it on your chest. Every time you look in the mirror, you see your sin, because that's what mirrors show, and then you see as a reminder. Okay. He gives more grace. John 1:16, from him we've received his fullness and grace stacking on grace. Stacking on grace. Stacking, I can't even reach it. Greater grace. Romans 5.20, where sin increased, guess what increased even more? Grace! More grace! I love how this author put it. He said, for daily need, there is daily grace. For sudden need, there is sudden grace. For overwhelming need, there is overwhelming grace. Anyone feel overwhelmed by your sin? Anyone feel overwhelmed by addiction? Anyone feel overwhelmed by your past? There is overwhelming grace for you. Today. Yes, you can clap for that. An artist out once submitted a painting of the Niagara Falls to a museum, but he forgot to title it, and so the gallery had to come up with a title for him, and it was just three simple but beautiful words, and the words were more to follow. And if you just think about the Niagara Falls, it's billions and billions of gallons of water gushing over this cliff year after year for thousands of years. And the title of the Niagara Falls is just more to follow. It's not running out. It's just going to keep on coming. (laughs) That's what grace is like. It won't run dry. It won't run out. So now the big question is, how do you take a hold of God's grace? Mm -hmm. If it never runs out and it's always there to be received, how do you actually receive it? A couple of things, and then we'll close. First, submit to God. Verse 7, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. You want to take a hold of God's grace? God's grace is a person. That person lives inside of you. The grace of God is the spirit of God. It's not a thing. The grace of God is a person and that person lives inside of you. And when you submit to him, you are essentially holding your hands out and saying, okay, spirit, and give me all you've got. I'm ready for the downpour, for the deluge. (laughs) Give me all you've got. You say, lead me, spirit. You say, guide me. You wake up in the morning, you say, give me your wisdom, give me your strength. You say, give me your eyes so that I see what you want me to see and I I don't let the orcs in and give me your ears so that I hear only what you want me to hear and give me your fruit. Love, joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and all of those wonderful things that the Spirit of God produces. You say, "I'm taking myself off the throne. I'm taking all of these passions and lusts and this, the ethos of this world off the throne. And here, I'm, I'm putting you where you belong. I'm submitting to you. I'm, I'm, I'm bowing before you in obedience." Have your rightful place. So the first step that you've got to take, if you want to grab a hold of greater and greater stacking on stacking of, of grace, if you want to experience and enjoy the presence of God in your life, is you have to submit to his authority. How did that go? How's it going? Are you, are, are you the master of your destiny? Or is God? Is it your will be done in Charlotte as it, in, as it is in heaven, or is it God's? Who's the authority? Who's got the final say? Now, listen, and I want you to hear this because I think we evangelicals get this twisted a lot. We love Jesus on a cross, but we hate Jesus on a throne. You cannot have Jesus on a cross if you don't accept him on the throne, too. He will not just be the lamb, he is the lion. He is the lamb. That's wonderful news. But he's not just a lamb. He is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is the creator and sustainer of all the universe. He's already put the principalities to open shame. He will rule all of your life or, or you don't have him. The grace of God, listen, the grace of God flows out of his throne. So if Jesus isn't on the throne, you're never getting the grace because you're never going to the throne. And so it starts with submitting to God. Second, Resist and return. Resist the devil and return to God. Verse 7. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Oh, that's great news. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's even better. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. There's a command and there's a promise here. Negatively, the command is to resist the devil. Positively, the command is to return to God. Anybody wander this past week? Return. Return come back, draw near, take a step. If you draw near to God, here's the promise, he will draw near to you. <laughs> In spite of your sin. Someone once said, there's only one view more welcome than the backside of the devil, and it's the face of God. God. I just think about the prodigal son. He hated his dad. He used his dad. He abandoned his dad. And then after he had ruined his life, he tried to return to his dad. You know the story. And while he was still a long way off, I don't even know how long it was. It was just a long way off. His father saw him, and he ran toward his son, and he embraced his son, and he kissed his son. And, man, he just carried him back. And he put the robe on him. And he killed the, the calf. And he put the ring on him, and they had a party. Inch toward God, and he's gonna take a step toward you. If you step toward God, he's gonna sprint toward you. If you sprint toward God, he's flying for you. You move a muscle. You you move, you, you just like kinda look in his direction, and boom, he's coming for you. you. Because God does not meet you halfway. He sees you when you're a long way off. And he's like, I've been waiting for this day. Come on. And he sprints to you and he picks you up and he carries you the rest of the way home. So resist the devil. Fight. Go to war. Kill the flesh and return to God. And you return multiple times a day. Uh, Dozens of times a day This is what prayer is As I've already been telling you Week in and week out Prayer is returning to God Prayer is where you resist the devil When you draw near to God And so you pray And he is right there The spirit's like Oh I was waiting for this conversation I'm so glad you decided to ring He carries us the rest of the way Third Wash up And weep Verse 8 Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Now, there are so many passages in the Bible that talk about joy and rejoicing and happiness and blessings. so don't get this wrong if this is the first thing you've ever heard out of the Bible. Um, This is talking about laughter when we should be sad it's not talking about day in and day out life it's talking about how we think about our sin what James is essentially asking is when was the last time you wept over your sin that's the question when was the last time you felt the weight of your sin that you mourned over your idolatry? When was the last time that you joined with the prophet Isaiah and you fell prostrate on, you, on your face and you cried out, woe is me for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among the people of unclean lips and who, can, who am I to stand in your presence? When was the last time that you grasped the psalm that says who can stand in the presence of God, who can ascend the holy hill, he who has clean hands and a pure heart? When was the last time you felt the weight of the fact that you don't have clean hands and you don't have a clean heart? Guys, I think the reason that most Christians don't enjoy the depths of God's grace is because they don't grasp the depths of their own sin. We laugh when we should be mourning. Guys, the the greater we see our sin, the greater we'll see his forgiveness. The, The greater we see our need for mercy the greater it will be when we experience his mercy. The stronger the temptation, the stronger the power. Guys, if you think your sin is tiny, if you think your sin is insignificant, then grace and mercy and love and kindness and and, compassion and patience and affection and all of these things that God wants to give you are going to be tiny and insignificant too. You will yawn in the face of the mercy of God. But if you see your sin as it really is, And you see yourself as you really are, then the grace of God all of a sudden becomes indescribable. You lose words. If you see yourself as you really are, His mercy becomes unthinkable. If you really understand your sin, His love, Ephesians 3, becomes incomprehensible. Are you serious? In spite of all that I did, you still love me? What? This kindness and compassion and patience and affection become the kind of stuff that dreams are made of. This is why Jesus would say, blessed are the spiritually bankrupt, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are starving for righteousness that they cannot earn for themselves, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin, for they will be comforted. So when was the last time you mourned? You saw it for what it really was. You wept. Wash up and weep. The Lord opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. We're going to close, but let me close with this this quote that I thought was so good going back to Niagara Falls. And then we'll respond in prayer. Look at this from Kent Hughes again. Just as the waters of Niagara Roll over the fall and plunge down to make a river below. And just as that river flows ever down to the even lower ranges of its course and then glides to still more low lying areas where it brings life and growth, so it is with God's grace. Grace's gravity carries it to the lowly in heart where it brings life and blessing. Grace goes to the humble. The unbowed soul standing proudly before God receives no benefit from God's fallen grace. It may descend upon him, but it does not penetrate and drips away like rain from a statue. But the soul lying humbly before God is immersed and even swims in a sea of grace. So while there is always more grace... It is reserved for the lowly and the humble. The gravity of grace will always channel the rivers of divine favor to those of you who are low. To those of you who submit to God. To those of you who resist the devil and draw near to him. To those of you who wash your hands of your sin and weep over your sin. If you humble yourselves before the Lord, he will exalt you. And that is, is the gospel that's the gospel according to james amen Amen. all right would you stand i'm going to invite you to bow where you are and talk to the spirit the gift of god who's inside of you who's been there all this time maybe talk to him for the first time in a long time and tell him whatever you need to tell him ask for more grace ask for more healing ask for more freedom ask for more victory Ask for more power. After we pray and you respond in prayer, we're going to go to the cross and remember again the blood of Christ that was shed for us, his body that was broken for us, and then we're going to baptize Leah. And then I'm sure we're going to sing. Pray.